0: Passion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Kurt Truxas. If you're new to Crosswinds, you came on a very good day to, to step into life here at our Crosswinds family. We are beginning a study of a new book of the Bible today. We're going to begin the, the Gospel of Mark. I'm pretty excited about this study. It'll take us uh, around a year, maybe a a little less, but it's a very good study for us to do. For those of you who are new to the Bible, uh, the Gospel of Mark is one of four books in our New Testament called the Gospel. Those are the life story of Jesus Christ. And as we spend about a year in this book, walking through the Gospel of Mark, we will get to know Jesus better And we'll get to love Jesus Christ more. And for a church, I'm not too sure what could be better than that, than knowing Jesus and loving him. Now, before we study any book of the Bible, one of the best things we can do is take some time to do some background research on the book. We need to know some of those things, like who wrote the book, and why did they write it, and what were they writing about, and how is the book Put together. And when you answer a lot of these background questions, then when you read the book, things start to make better sense because you can start to understand the book. And that's what we're going to do this morning. Today, we're actually not going to be in the text of Mark itself. We're going to be just doing some background research on Mark so we can understand Mark a little bit better. So, we're going to break this morning's study into two parts. First, we're going to It's called Meet Mark, by the way. That's the title of the whole thing. We're going to meet the book of Mark. So introduce to you how that book is put together. And then we're going to meet the man named Mark. Meeting the book of Mark is a little bit more technical, but you'll be fascinated when you get a chance to meet the man named Mark, the author of this gospel. So if you have your outlines, take them out. We're going to start right on the top here. Meet the book of Mark. The first point is this, how does Mark relate to the other Gospels? And As far as we can tell, Mark is the first of the four Gospels that were written. When I was in seminary, they had us do this exercise that I found, quite honestly, extremely painful. What they did is uh, they made us take the Greek text of Mark, Matthew, Luke, and John, line it up side by side, and all the similar similar stories were together, and then we were to highlight in Luke and Matthew and John things we thought were borrowed from the book of Mark. And I was fascinated to realize how much... In particular, Matthew and Luke seem to have used Mark as the basis or the the foundation for their Gospels. Obviously, Matthew and Luke are longer. They add much more. They're not necessarily in the same order, but the stories and even phrases are borrowed right out of Mark's Gospel. John, by the way, as a Gospel, comes much later, and it's certainly unique unto itself. So it's almost as like Matthew and Luke had a copy of Mark with them when they wrote their gospel. So that's how foundational Mark is to our understanding of the life of Christ. When was Mark written? Uh, Incidentally, none of the gospels come with a date stamp on them. (laughs) They don't come like that. Uh, So we don't necessarily know exactly when it was written, but we do know this. Mark, we'll see, is closely associated with Peter. And Mark appears to have been written either shortly before Peter died or shortly after Peter died. Peter died in AD 65 as part of Nero's persecutions. This means the Gospel of Mark was written either in the late 50s or the early 60s. Not 1950s. We're talking 50s, like that's it. You know, all the way back there. Now, as we study Mark, what you're going to notice is you can almost hear Peter's voice in this gospel. You can hear Peter sort of telling the firsthand story accounts of what life was like with Jesus years before when they were together. So um, we know when it's written somewhere around the late 50s, early 60s. To whom was the gospel of Mark written? We know the Gospel of Matthew is written to the Jews. This is why Matthew takes a lot of time to tie Old Testament references and quotations into his book because he wants uh, the Jews to understand that Jesus is their Savior. This is why Matthew begins with a lengthy genealogy showing that Jesus is in the line of King David. Luke, his audience were Gentiles, not Jews. But not just any Gentiles. In particular, it was the more highly educated Gentiles. I call them the college graduate Gentiles. In fact, if you look at the beginning of Luke, and you don't see this in the English, you see this in the Greek. The Greek structure of the way the beginning of Luke is put together is extremely complex. It's an extremely highly educated Greek. And the idea is somebody, when they read Luke's gospel, they go, man, This guy is smart. Whoever this guy is brilliant, we better listen to him. And the purpose of this sophisticated opening is to sort of disarm uh, the prideful intellects out there who think they're really smart. And They're like, well, this guy who's talking about Jesus is really smart too. Maybe I should listen to him. So Matthew is written to the Jews. Luke is written to the Gentiles, the educated Gentiles. What about Mark? Mark is also written to the Gentiles, but it's written in what is called very simple Greek. If you're going to be translating out of Greek as a student, this is the gospel you want to do because it's grade school Greek. Very simple and straightforward. Now, Mark's audience, obviously, is all people, even uneducated Gentiles. He wants to be able to understand about Jesus. Mark is also a very fast-moving gospel. One of his favorite words we'll see throughout this study is the word immediately. Jesus is doing this, and then it says, and he immediately went and did this, and immediately went and did that. So the idea is that Mark is a little bit like an action flick. It's always moving, always fast, but it's an action movie that everybody in the audience, even the kids can understand as he tells them about Jesus. Incidentally, just so you know, the Gospel of Mark, like the other New Testament letters, was not meant to be read in quiet privately. It was meant to be read out loud publicly. Most of the people in the first century were illiterate. They could not read. Even the simple Greek that Mark wrote in. So what would happen is you'd come to church and they would have like Mark's gospel and somebody who could read would get up front and read it to you. And so this is how the gospel of Mark was intended to be understood. It read to the common people in the very simple language they used every single day. There's also hints, by the way, in this gospel that uh, the people that Mark was writing to We're going through hard times. They're going through times of persecution and suffering. Just little hints you'll see sprinkled throughout this book to encourage them that, by the way, it's not just you who suffered. Jesus has suffered too. So as we put this together, uh, what do we know about who this book was written to? Here's what we can tell. It seems that the Gospel of Mark... Was written to the common people in the city of Rome. People who couldn't read, but people who, at this time, if you follow the chronology, would be enduring the persecutions of Nero. If you remember, uh, Nero set a fire in Rome that actually burned down 80% of the city. And by the way, the people were not real happy about that. So who do you think he blamed for the fire? The Christians. And so who's suffering? And who's getting persecuted and who's dying? The Christians. And Mark writes the gospel. Let me tell you about Christ's life. And by the way, he suffered unfairly too. What is the gospel of Mark's structure? This past week, uh, a friend of mine said that they were listening to a radio preacher, and the preacher mentioned that uh, the gospel of Mark sounds like it's been literally just dictated to Mark from Peter. And that person asked me what I thought about that. And I said, uh, well, the answer is a definite yes and a definite no. Real definitive on my part. So let me explain that. It's yes in this way. Definitely. We're going to hear Peter's words all over this gospel. You'll see how um, Mark is just remembering the things that Peter has told him about Jesus again and again, but here's where I differ. It's not a casually dictated gospel like we were using Siri to write a text message when we're driving. (laughs) Absolutely not. The gospel of Mark is um, put together extremely carefully and extremely purposefully and it is a highly structured and ordered book some of you know that for my doctoral doctoral work I studied uh, ancient rhetoric it's called rhetorical analysis in the first century now let me just explain that in everyday language In Rome, which was the epicenter of rhetoric in the ancient world, when you would do some public speaking or public reading of a document, it had to be a very structured document, a highly organized document, if anyone was to respect it or to listen to it. Now, my doctoral work was on the Book of Romans. And if you've read the Book of Romans, you probably have that feeling that it's very structured, very organized, and that's the way it was supposed to be for that culture. But it wasn't just the book of Romans that was written to people in Rome. It was also the Gospel of Mark that was written to people in Rome. And if the Gospel of Mark was to be taken seriously, it would have to be put together very carefully. It would have to be highly structured and highly organized, because that's what the Romans wanted. Now, here's what you find. It's fascinating. I'll just give you the overall structure of the book. Sixteen chapters, it breaks into two halves of eight chapters each. The first eight chapters are all geared around answering this question. Who is Jesus? The second eight chapters are all geared around answering this question. What did Jesus come to do? So let me show this to you. Mark 1 through 8, they answer the question, who is Jesus? In those chapters, we will be with the disciples and see what happens is Jesus does healings. Jesus does miracles. Jesus does teachings. And what happens is slowly as you go through these chapters, all of a sudden, a picture of who Jesus is starts to come into focus. He's not like a a prophet. He's not just a, a teacher. He's somebody way beyond that. In fact, right smack in the middle of the book, at the end of this section, Jesus asks his disciples the operative question. So, who do you say I am? And remember what Peter says. Mark chapter 8, verse 29. Peter answered him, You are the Christ. That's the answer to the first half of the book. Who is Jesus? The Christ. And here's all the facts to prove it. Now you get the second half of the book. Now that you know Jesus is the Christ, and all of a sudden, Jesus begins talking about his death. And that doesn't make sense to the Jews. Because according to the Jews, the Christ will come to overthrow the Romans. But Jesus says, I didn't come to overthrow the Romans. I came to die. And throughout the second half of the book, uh, the disciples are like dense as a rock. They just don't get it. Why would you come to die, Jesus, if you're the Christ? Now, here's the answer. Jesus has come to overthrow the great enemy, but an enemy that's far greater than Rome. He's come to destroy the enemy of Satan, sin, and death. And he's going to do it by dying on the cross. And just like there was sort of a summary statement at the end of the first half where Peter declared the answer to the question, Who is Jesus? He is the Christ. There was a summary statement at the end of the second half. Except, of course, the apostles don't get it. So the centurion who's in charge of Christ's crucifixion is noted as the one who actually gets it. And the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last. He said, truly this man was the Son of God. So, what you see is that it breaks in two halves. Who is Jesus? And what did he come to do? Which is why Pastor Jordan and I agreed to name this series, Mark the King and the Cross. Who is Jesus? Jesus. He is Christ our King. What did He come to do? He came to die on the cross. So hopefully, when you read that the title we put for this series, you'll remember the two halves of the book. And that was the purpose of it. Now, what is a key theme in Mark? Let me go over this quickly because I want to be good, good of my time here. It's this is one of the key themes. The Christian life means denying yourself taking up your cross, and following in the footsteps of Jesus. Jesus, when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane, he said, Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not my will be done, but your will be done. And obviously, sometime God the Father's will for his children is that they would suffer, and maybe even die. And God has a good purpose in that because Christ's suffering and Christ's death was the sacrifice for our sins. But what often happens in this book is Mark will talk about, well, it's time for you to pick up your cross and follow me. Guess what? Suffering and death for Christians, not just for Christ, is normative too. If this world was opposed to Christ, you can expect that this world will be uh, opposed to you. Now, in our culture, which is all about selfishness, our culture, which is about me and, and my happiness and the prosperity gospel, and that Christ has come to make me rich and successful, this completely flies in the face of it. Because discipleship in Mark is you lay down your will. And you submit to yourself to your heavenly Father's will. Knowing that may involve suffering. It may even involve death. But it's all going to be for God's glory. Just like Jesus. Well, that's the background uh, of the book of Mark I wanted to give you. Now, let's turn the corner and let's look at the man named Mark. And I really think you're going to be fascinated at this. The first thing to understand is uh, while this book is called the Gospel of Mark, you'll notice that Mark nowhere mentions himself inside of this book as we study it. Incidentally, Matthew doesn't really mention himself also inside of the book, and and John also doesn't mention himself inside of his book, because what often happened in that time is that people, when they're writing about somebody, they wanted to make famous or they wanted to focus the attention on, they tried to leave themselves as anonymous when they wrote something. And that's what Mark was trying to do. He wants you and me to remember Jesus, to understand who Jesus is and what Jesus has done for you. He says, don't remember me. Remember Jesus. So I'm not putting my name in there. But that being stated... You need to know that as you study this, um, you go back to extra-biblical writings of early church fathers to go all the way back to the first century itself, all the way back to the times when the Gospel of Mark was written. They universally credit Mark with writing this book. In fact, some of the earliest copies we have of this book have across the top, the Gospel According to Mark. The good news of Jesus that Mark has written down. So Mark tried to remain anonymous, but guess what? He was found out, so we know without a shadow of a doubt that Mark is the one behind this book. Now, let me just take some time so you can meet Mark as a person. Mark first shows up in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 12. Now, Acts chapter 12 and Acts chapter 13 is a very important part of the book of Acts. It's the hinge in the book. Acts chapter, or chapter 1, verse 8, gives us the structure of the book of Acts. It says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. The first 12 chapters of the book of Acts is about the spread of the good news of Jesus Christ in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria. Chapter 13 on is about the spread of the good news to the ends of the earth. Now, if you've studied the book of Acts, you'll know the first 12 chapters have Peter sort of as the key focal center guy is spreading the good news of Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria. From chapter 13 on, Paul is the one who is the center guy, who spreads the gospel to the ends of the earth. Now, as we're, gonna, or as we're going to meet Mark, what we're going to do is take a little bit of a, a smooth on-ramp. We're going to read the beginning of chapter 12, and we're going to see how he shows up on the scene. Acts chapter 12, verses 1 through 5. At that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Start at the top. Herod, just so you know, is your typical rotten politician. He is not interested in doing what is right, He is interested in doing whatever he has to to stay in power. Now, we see he's already arrested and killed James, one of the apostles. He's discovered, boy, the Jews really like that. I want to gain some more brownie points with them, so let's arrest Peter, and we'll kill him too. And the Jews will really like me at that point. Now, to understand what the church is like at this point, realize this is taking place approximately 12 years after the resurrection. How many people came to Christ on the day of Pentecost? You guys remember? How many? 3,000. So we got the church off to a pretty good start on the first day. Now, this is 12 years later. How big do you think the church is at this point? I don't know, but I think it is a humongous church. And who is the key guy in the church of Jerusalem? Peter. Herod's saying, let's just go right to the top. We're going to arrest Peter and kill Peter. That's the number one guy in this mega church. And I think Herod is a little bit worried that somehow Peter could be broken out or uh, could escape. Because you notice he assigns four squads of soldiers. That means that each of them take six-hour shifts. They are literally double-chained to Peter. They are deep inside the prison system. So of the, even if this church of 10,000 people decided to rush uh, rush the prison, they couldn't get in because it's that deep inside, and he's that heavily guarded. So what's the church strategy at this point? The only thing you can do, pray. Let's find out what happens from there. Now, when Herod was about to bring him out, on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains, not just one. And centuries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side, waking him, saying, Get up! Quickly! And the chains just fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, Dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Now wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know what was being done by the angel was real, but he thought he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and then the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city, and it just opened for them on its own accord. And they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I'm sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. And when he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where they were gathered together and were praying. So the night before Peter is to die, he's sleeping double-chained, between soldiers, when this angel comes in, wakes him up, the chains fall off his hands, makes him dress, and just walks him right out of the jail. The gates open, he goes down one block of the city, and all of a sudden, poof, the angel is gone. And then, I'm sure Peter is pinching himself. Did this really happen? And I think you would be pinching yourself, too. This seems like more like a dream. And here where is where it gets interesting. It's the middle of the night in the city of Jerusalem. He's just been set free. Where does he go? Instinctively, he goes to the house of Mary, who is the mother of John, also called Mark. And there's our author's first introduction to us in the scriptures. Let me give you a little background. First of all, you notice he has two names. John, also called Mark. Now, why does he have two names? John is his Jewish name. Mark is his Gentile name. Why would you still need to have those two names? Well, it's a little bit like when we had the international students here a few weeks ago. Remember how we had these guys from China and you say, what's your name? And they go, and you're like, And then you ask the next guy, and he says the same thing. And you're like, I have no idea how to spell that. I have no idea how to pronounce that. I have no idea how to say that. And the international students go through that with every single American they meet until finally they get smart and they say, uh, one of them goes, just call me Frank. So he has his Chinese name, and he has his American name that all the Americans can actually understand and say. It's the same thing with John, also called Mark. Don't get hung up on my Jewish name if you don't get it right. Just call me Mark. All the people in Rome can understand that. The other thing that's interesting to notice is it talks about the house of his mother named Mary. In this culture, it is extremely strange to not have the father's name given, but to have the mother's name given. Apparently, there is no father on the scene anymore. Mark is being raised by a single mom. What's happened to her husband? We don't know. Most scholars speculate that her husband has died at a young age. We know she has a house, we know she has a very large house. Because the church, which is a big church in Jerusalem, can come to her house for a nighttime prayer meeting. So it's a big place. But it's Mark and his mom, his single mom with the big house. Then you start to wonder, why would Peter know instinctively to go to Mary's house in the middle of the night? I mean, he didn't text anybody, I guarantee you. He didn't use the Find My Friends app. You see, he knew that the church usually met in Mary's house. Apparently, Mary has consistently opened her door to church events and church functions. So Peter has been over Mary's house many times. So when he doesn't know where to find his Christian brothers and sisters, he knows if he just goes to Mary's house, that's most likely where he will find them. And that's what he does. Now, um, let me switch a little bit here. We saw earlier that there is a uh, sort of a hump in the book of Acts between Acts chapter 12 In Acts chapter 13, where it goes from Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria to the ends of the earth. When we finish up Acts chapter 12, Mark shows up again. It says this, And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. Now, what is going on? Earlier in Acts... We know that a prophet named Agabus had predicted that there would be a famine in the land of, in the city of Jerusalem. And the church of Antioch had taken up a large benevolent offering. Paul and Barnabas were in charge of bringing that to the church in Jerusalem. They had done that. Now they were returning and somehow Mark ended up associated with them going back to Antioch. Why did that happen? And here's where the scriptures unlock that, the answer to that question. You go to Colossians chapter 4, verse 10, and we see, it says, Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you, and Mark, the cousin of Barnabas. So Mark is related to Barnabas. And I don't know if this is exactly the way it happened, but I sort of picture it this way. Barnabas and Paul come to Jerusalem, Barnabas is either uh, Mary's brother or her husband's brother. Mary is sort of probably getting tired of having young Mark around the house. You know, there's no strong man around here to help raise him. We need a man in his life to help grow him up in the Lord. And he's had some other men in the church that are doing that, but, you know, it it would be helpful. And so what ends up happening is uh, she says, you know, Mark, why don't you see if you can travel back to Antioch with your uncle Barnabas? And that's what happens. Now there's another interesting part of this. Barnabas, we know from other parts of Scripture, is a Levite. The job of the Levites were to be helpers to the priests. This means if Mark is related to him, guess what Mark is most likely? He's also most likely a Levite who has been trained from boyhood to be a good helper. So Mary says to Barnabas, Why don't you have Mark come along on your travels and be a helper to you, and a helper in the church of Antioch. It would be good to get him out of town for a while. Now, when we turn the page and we go to Acts chapter 13 there is a list of the really important people who are in the church of Antioch. And I want to read this to you. And notice who's missing. Now there were in the church of, at Antioch prophets and teachers. Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menon, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. And while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. Who's not even mentioned? Mark. He's not even mentioned. See, he's a completely under-the-radar, ordinary guy who at this point in the story is just joining Uncle Barnabas to help him. Not notable at all. What happens as we see at this prayer meeting, though, the Holy Spirit says, set aside Paul and Barnabas for the work of which I've called them. So Paul and Barnabas are going to begin their first missionary journey, and guess who's going to have to go along because he has to take care of his cousin. Mark has to go along because Barney has to take care of him. And that's exactly what happened. But Barnabas, or Mark rather, is nothing more than in charge of luggage, laundry, and cleaning. That's his job. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. And they had John to assist them. That word assist in the Greek means that he is nothing more than a mere servant to them. I'm just making sure the hotel reservations are done. Your shirts are pressed so you look good when you speak. That's all he's doing in this point. Now, right out of the chute, we know in this first missionary journey, things get rough. As you read this, you find that Paul and Barnabas run into a guy who is a magician. I can't pronounce his name real good. It's E L Y M A S, Ilymas. He is a really powerful, dark, like satanic dude who is completely in opposition to the gospel, who openly opposes Paul and Barnabas. And there is going to end up in a big showdown. And it does end up in what is called a power encounter between Ilymas and Paul. And Paul publicly ends up uh, rebuking this magician. And then it says, filled with the power of the Holy Spirit, he strikes the magician guy blind. Now, usually the Holy Spirit is healing people. But when the Holy Spirit is striking somebody blind, you know he's one bad dude. And who's been there through this whole thing? Mark. Mark. And who do you think is starting to really freak out? Who do you think gets really homesick and says, this is a little too much for me hanging out with Paul and Barnabas and all this super powerful spiritual stuff going on? Mark. And so what we find is Mark is scared and so he runs back home. Now, Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia, and John left them and returned to Jerusalem. Going home to mom. The safety of the basement. Now, what happens at this point is Mark disappears from the New Testament for a period of time. In the book of Acts, uh, Paul's missionary journey continues. He finishes with Barnabas on their first missionary journey. They return to Jerusalem. They're there for a while. And then they realize they should go and check on the churches they planted. So right before they leave to check on the churches they planted, we find this section in Acts chapter 15. And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, "'Let us return and visit the brothers in every city "'where we proclaim the word of the Lord "'and see how they are.'" Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John, called Mark. But Paul thought best not to take uh, not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement, so that they separated from each other, Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Barnabas, who's his cousin, who's always the encourager, wants to give Mark a second chance. Now, he was young. He was sort of freaked out. He's grown up some. I want to take him with us. Paul says, I absolutely refuse. This guy, Mark, he cannot be trusted. He's still very frustrated with him. So look at the profile we have of Mark. The profile is this. Mark is nobody special. He is just a helper. His jobs are just luggage and laundry. And when it came to helping Paul he failed. He failed miserably. He was a deserter. Now Paul won't even trust him. Thankfully, cousin Barnabas will. So Barnabas and Mark leave, and we lose track of them for about 10 years in the New Testament. We pick them up again a little bit later on. What's happened? We see, in Paul has also done his second missionary journey. Paul eventually ends up in jail in Rome. He ends up in jail twice, by the way. The first time he is freed. The second time he dies, literally loses his head. But while he is in jail that first time he writes uh, some letters to the churches. He writes the letter of Ephesians and Colossians and Philemon, all three of which we have studied as a church. But when Mark closes the book of Colossians, or excuse me, when Paul, forgive me, when Paul closes the book of Colossians, he happens to mention Mark. Colossians 4.10, Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you, and Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, Concerning whom you have received instructions, if he comes to you, welcome him. Apparently what has happened is Paul has forgiven Mark, and Paul and Mark have a restored relationship. Mark has become Paul's helper. In fact, here is Mark, most likely, at least for a period of time, helping Paul in prison. Last time, Mark deserted him when times got tough. Now Mark is hanging when times get tough. Incidentally, this rift between Paul and Mark apparently was pretty public because Paul feels it important to mention to the Colossians, it if Mark does come to you, by the way, make sure you welcome him. The relationship between us has been restored and put back together. Now I told you that Paul ended up in jail in Rome twice. The second time he was in jail, Paul died and lost his head. But before that happened, he was, wrote a letter. He wrote a letter to Timothy. And by the way, in this letter, guess who he mentions again? Mark, the author of our gospel. 2 Timothy 4, verse 11. Luke alone is with me. Get Mark! And bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for ministry. Here is Paul at the end of his life saying, the one guy I really want to have with me, the one guy who is a helper who is so useful to me is Mark. Bring him with you. Bring him here with me. So here's the picture of Mark we have. Not a prophet, not a teacher, not an upfront guy, just a helper behind the scenes. A guy who failed Paul miserably. But he was forgiven ultimately by Paul. Ultimately he ended up traveling with Paul and became one of Paul's best friends. And the guy that Paul wanted with him when he died. But there's another interesting wrinkle that makes this story so exciting. What happened to Mark when he abandoned Paul and Barnabas on that first missionary journey? Remember he went home to mom, went back to Jerusalem? Who was in Jerusalem? Who was his pastor who he had sat under for years? Who was the guy who came to his house where the church met in his house Peter Peter. now Peter knows something about failure and restoration doesn't he Peter who failed Christ three times on the night he was betrayed yet Christ restored him and Christ used him in a big way to be the leader of the church in Jerusalem and apparently what happened is when Mark came home in shame. Pastor Peter put his arm around him, forgave him, believed in him, restored him, and continued to use him in ministry. In fact, there's an interesting part. We know that Peter actually made a trip to Rome at one point. And guess who Peter decided to take with him to have as his helper, his luggage and laundry guy? Mark. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 13. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings. And so does Mark, my son. Mark didn't have a father. Who ended up as Mark's adoptive father? The apostle Peter, who loved him, and who spent all kinds of time with him. So, the picture is this. We put all the pieces together. Mark grew up in the church of Jerusalem. The church literally met in his mother's house. He probably came to Christ under Peter's preaching. He was the cousin of Barnabas. He was the helper of Barnabas and Paul. He failed, went back to Jerusalem, ultimately was restored by Peter and helped by Peter, Then he traveled with Peter. Then later he traveled with Barnabas and was Barnabas' helper. Finally was forgiven by Paul and traveled with Paul and became the one guy that Paul desperately wanted with him in the moment he was getting prepared to lose his life. So when it came time for the story of Jesus to be written, who on the planet was probably in the best position to actually write that? Who had spent decades listening to Peter's preaching, decades listening to Peter's firsthand accounts of Jesus Christ and what life was like with him? It was Mark. Now, here's what's interesting. The Gospel of Mark, it's all about Jesus. Who Jesus is? and what Jesus came to do. But the life of Mark, it's how God can take ordinary people like you and me, even ordinary people who fail him, restore them and use them in extraordinary ways for his kingdom. I find that incredibly encouraging. Last week we talked about hospitality and the importance of hospitality and how God uses that in a big way. I think Mary, his mother, had no idea that the hospitality of opening the church to meet in her home, the hospitality of having Peter over her home would have such a big impact that her ordinary son would become the close companion of Peter, Barnabas, in Paul. That her ordinary son would be the one chosen by the Holy Spirit to write the Gospel of Mark. The Gospel of Mark that would become the foundation of base for the Gospel of Matthew and the Gospel of Luke. The Gospel that tells us the story of Jesus that for the last 2,000 years have led literally billions of people to Jesus Christ. God uses ordinary people. In extraordinary ways. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Kurt's sermons can be found online at ChristToOurCulture.com. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.